That is why you're the pro audio engineer and uh, I'm not. Because I remember to press record. That is, that is a key part of this process. Well, I actually have the, um, uh, I have the window closed today because we have very noisy frogs outside. Frogs? Frogs. Uh, we have frogs. It's a wonderful problem to have. My son woke up last night complaining that the frogs were too noisy. And uh, you think about all the things that people would have trouble sleeping with at night, whether it's like noisy neighbors or a party happening downstairs or somebody having sex upstairs or, you know, frogs. Frogs outside. I think that's that's just wonderful. <laughs> are you out in the country or something? Or are you, where, where, what sort of place are you living in? I would call this semi-rural Japan, I suppose. I think um, it's a bit difficult because uh, people who've been to Japan outside the cities, you'll know that uh, the definition of rural in the Japanese sense is a little bit vague because there there are always going to be shops, there are always going to be houses, there's always going to be like bus stops and, you know, there's just sort of things. Vending machines. Vending machines, of course, things that you would naturally equate with a civilization and non-rural settings. And urban life. Exactly. And uh, here, I mean, the fact we're surrounded on all sides by creeks and rice fields and and stuff like that um, but there are there are, you, you look into the distance and you, you've got this massive shinkansen line and you've got high-rise apartments in the distance distance as well so it's sort of hard to really know where to place whether it's rural or or not but uh, we have frogs that is that is true it's funny in japan as well because they talk you know the inaka the countryside is kind of always said with a like a bad tone like Oh yeah, no, don't come to my place. I live out in Inaka. It's not very nice, you know, right. and or, or whatever. Whereas, at least in England, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in in England, if you've got a house in the country, that you're probably posh. Like that's that's nice. We aspire to that. That's uh, not really the case in Australia, where the country is a little arid. Oh, uh, it kills you. <laughs> that's right. full of deadly creatures. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that is. That is a funny thing about Japan, the sort of the, the prejudice that people have here against uh, the countryside. And I guess the idea that uh, civilization and built up areas and urban areas are somehow better and more advanced and more, um, you know, a step ahead of the of the uh, the countryside and the agricultural areas. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. But there is a, as, as is well known, there's a, a really incredible sociological phenomenon going on here at the moment where the uh, population is shrinking so so uh, drastically that uh, many of the the smaller towns and smaller areas are basically emptying of young people right and so all of the young people move off to the city where the the jobs and the opportunities are and the excitement and um, you get situations where um, you have schools which are built to hold you know up to one thousand students be reduced to, you know, a school population of like, you know, 50. Mm. Actually, uh, one of my friends who lives in Fukuoka, uh, he lives just outside uh, Fukuoka City and um, his children are going to a primary school there that was built. It's the size for about, you know, six, 700 students. But I think in year four where his son is, there's like three kids. Oh, wow. And in order to sort of... Um, uh, reduce the amount of overhead they have for cleaning and things like that. They basically shut up all of the school that's not being used. 
So they have like the year four on one side of a classroom facing this way. Mm. And then there's some partitions. And then there's like year three on the other side of the classroom facing that way. And and uh, it's sort of a bit sad, really. He said that actually it's kind of nice because you get full attention from the teachers, obviously. And also... Well, uh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, you have to pay a lot of money for that sort of education, usually. <laughs> right. And the other thing, of course, is that the kids, because there's so few of them in the school... Um, they all play together. So you get that situation where you've got, uh, you know, older kids um, playing with the younger kids, which, uh, you know, of course, has it brings with it its own set of complications on occasion, but also it can be very educational for kids to have other uh, children to look up to. So um, it's a very, uh, a little kind of sad and, and unusual phenomenon happening here in Japan with the uh, population shrinking so drastically. Anyway, last week we, uh, we were talking about BitSummit, and um, I believe uh, during that conversation, uh, we mentioned a specific trade show for the game industry in the States called E3. We did. We, by comparison with Tokyo Game Show, we were, so it was a tangent from a tangent. We were saying that BitSummit, unlike Tokyo Game Show, is for indies, and Tokyo Game Show, unlike E3, is in Japan. Um, <laughs> but when, when I said that, I was completely sort of oblivious in my mind to the fact that E3 was actually only in a couple of weeks. I hadn't, I hadn't stopped to think about that. I've always, for the last few years, I've not really noticed E3 coming. It's kind of passed me by a little bit. Right. It could have been because you were living in Japan. I suppose. Uh, yes. So actually, that was a bit of clever foreshadowing because E3 is actually right now. Right. It's on as we speak. When this podcast goes out, it'll be... Uh uh, we're actually right at the end of. Uh, it would be last week, I suppose, when when this podcast goes out. But uh, yeah, it would probably have just finished. But I think um, E three used to be industry only, sort of like a marketing marketing centric game industry event for the industry people and you know select uh, developers, obviously, and select individuals. Um, uh, however, I think this year they've opened E3 up to the public. Oh, is that only starting this year? I think so. I think that's the. I don't know that they've done this before. I think that's the key difference this time. That E3 this time is is open to the public, so it's become a consumer focused event instead. Oh wow, I didn't realize that. I mean, I, I've always found. I think part of the thing is that I love GDC every year. Uh, the Game Developer Conference in San Francisco always has tons of really great talks, and it's it's obviously focused towards developers, and so. I've always got a lot out of that. But E3 has always been much more consumer oriented. Even if, you know, people couldn't get in, it's they're kind of showing the games and, you know, the new hardware, whatever it might be, to the media to show to the consumers. Right. It's like one massive press conference. Right. And it's cool. And I do get a bit excited. And I have, you know, people have been tweeting uh, some of the things that have been announced this time and uh, there's some cool stuff in there. Have you have you seen any of it? A uh, little bits and pieces here and there. I uh, haven't had time to check too much of it out, but uh, um, uh, mostly the things that have been not only just the big AAA titles and their trailers, which are always incredible. Did you have you seen the new Spider-Man? Have you seen the gameplay footage they showed of the new Spider-Man? No, I haven't. Is it good? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I think quite a lot of people have have talked about it. And from a gameplay point of view. You know, there's some people saying, well, it's kind of just fighting and and quick time events, which there were there were quite a few of. So we'll have to see how it actually feels to play when it comes out, which is not for ages. It's like next year or something. But 
One thing I really liked about it is that it really felt like Spider-Man to me. Mm. The colors were very bright. Uh, and obviously the, the movement, Spider-Man's movement was very uh, smooth and, and all of that. But another nice detail, and I don't know if this is something that is part of the gameplay that the person demonstrating the game was doing himself or herself, or whether this is uh, a thing that is done automatically by the system. But Spider-Man never killed anyone in the demo. Mm. There were, there were, he knocked them out and he threw them up against the wall with his web. And there were a, cu a couple of occasions when he would do something like he'd punch them off the side of a building. So they're going to fall off the building and obviously that would kill them. In those situations, he spun out a little web and flipped them back up so they landed back on the roof of the building. So they, you know, didn't die. Nice. And I thought that was a really nice detail. That was... That's, you know, superhero games and films and everything have been getting more dark and everything recently, and that has its merit. But of all the superheroes, I think Spider-Man is sort of one of those ones that is nice when it's kind of bright and fun. And I thought it was just a nice detail that, that at least in this whole demo, uh, nobody died. Are you a bit of a fan of comic book heroes? When, when you were young, did you used to follow Marvel and DC Comics and all of that? I am... Um, a bit of a fan of comic book heroes. That, that is literally true. I think it feels like one of those things that is quite difficult to be, like people are either really into it or they're totally not into it. But I, I'm, I was, I quite liked comics and I read X-Men, uh, mostly X-Men. And I read a couple of others that I can't even remember what they were called. <laughs> right. But I was mainly into Marvel. I read mostly X-Men and some Spider-Man and Marvel did a cool series called What If, mm. where they they just did like some one-off comics where they explored what would have happened if something, just something went slightly different in the sort of canon and how that would change things. So they did one that I got where it was called What If Peter Parker Killed Spider-Man? Right. And the story was that the spider didn't bite Peter Parker, it bit uh, somebody else. I can't remember. It was somebody who was either the school bully or was like a mad scientist or somebody. Anyway, it bit somebody who ended up not using it for good and using all the superpowers uh, for evil means. And Peter Parker, as a, a normal guy who had not been bit by a spider and didn't have superpowers, went up against this, this evil version of, of Spider-Man. I see. And that was kind of neat. What what is the appeal of a superhero? I I I think we had we actually had this conversation but we it was cut short by uh um needing to get off the train. <laughs> but uh mm. I when I was growing up my brother had uh, DC comics and he had Marvel comics and uh, you know I had easy access to a whole bunch of all of this stuff. And mm. I remember flipping through a few of them on occasion but it just never it's like well okay whatever yeah you know always flying. Oh great. <laughs> you know, I never, I never. It sort of really never, never took hold of me at all. Meanwhile, things like um, uh, Asterix. You remember Asterix the Gaul? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also the the Japanese manga that um, my brother also had. You know that that I found much more appealing for some reason. I just found that the the superhero thing was so unplausible, non plausible, implausible, implausible, anti plausible, <laughs> a a plausible that. That it just sort of, you know, well, this is clearly, 
clearly fictional. Like there's nothing here that I can sort of relate to. This is a guy comes from a different planet. He's wearing a blue suit. He's got his underpants on the outside. He's got a red cape and he's flying around lifting up trains and, and, you know, shooting lasers out of his eyes and, and, and people are firing bullets at him and they're all like bouncing off his chest. And it's just like, I, it's like absolutely nothing for me to hold on to here as, as something that I can relate to myself or something that I can sort of imagine, oh, I'm in this story or that's me. Hmm. Of course, that's not me. I can't fly. I can't shoot lasers out my eyes. It's just sort of that. that's why I have not, you know, I think that comic books are fantastic and that they're, they're a wonderful part of modern art history. But I just I, I just don't I've never seen the appeal. And now, of course, when you have the last 10 years, 15 years, 10 years, I guess, with with this uh sort of um, fascination that Hollywood has had with the superhero genre and you're getting all of these superhero movies and uh, sort of superhero franchises. Again, it's just sort of, you know, you watch them and it's just, well, it's a kind of fantasy that I, I have real difficulty sort of relating to somehow. Could, can you explain to me what the appeal is? Interesting. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure I can. <laughs> I mean, you don't have superpowers, but you probably have things in common with with other parts of these characters you know they're not superheroes aren't only defined by the superpowers peter parker his superpower was that he was bitten by a spider and he has sort of spider sense that he can sense danger approaching and he can climb up walls and stuff but his throwing webs was is not a superpower do you know that have you i don't know no i didn't know that spider-man uh, can throw webs right and swing from building to building you know that much yeah um those webs that he throws, those, those are not part of his superpower. That, those are an invention that Peter Parker made because he was a bit of a nerd before he got bitten by the spider. Okay. And he was really into science and chemistry and stuff. And so he, he made this thing so that, you know, when he climbs up buildings, um, he can, you know, it would be a useful thing to have to be able to throw this web and stick to things and swing from place to place right um so that's I, I, in that doesn't really prove anything but it's just it's one aspect of like as a sort of somewhat geeky person which i think a lot of the readers of, of comics tend to be uh i think a lot of people can put themselves in in that situation as mm. thinking Oh yeah, that's that's the sort of thing I would do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's just that it's just that unrealism that I, I found. Like, for example, I guess my equivalent um, uh, of the sort of superhero idol that I had was MacGyver, and right. MacGyver, I, I that's something that I could really identify with because here's a guy who, um, you know, I was never never very physically strong or sort of never around a a child culture of, of, you know, um, you know, fights and, and things like that. So the, the idea that here's this guy, he'd always like, when you punched somebody, he would always make it look really painful for himself. Like he'd always like hold his fist right. after he's like, ah, that really hurt. And <laughs> it's sort of using, using the, the objects in the environment to, to get, get his way, you know, to, to, to escape or to, to, uh, whatever the story was for the episode. But, that's that was an like it's just very very real and very sort of plausible and like that could be me. I can't punch people; I'd hurt my hand. But right, you know, I can take. But a this, so the idea that through some sort of magic or happenstance or being bit bitten by a radioactive spider that uh, that that could be that you you would have abilities and strength that you don't have now. You never found that appealing. 
Never. And I think, I think with, with X-Men, in, uh, X-Men is another one. X-Men, are, they have like a, a genetic, um, not a, a defect, I suppose. It's a genetic mutation uh, that gives them their superpowers. And that tends to happen at uh, sort of during adolescence. And so they, these kids have thought of themselves as nothing special and, you know, a little bit the same sort of thing that you were describing of, of not being very strong and knowing how oh, I can punch someone or whatever. Uh, and then these powers manifest and they suddenly become sort of, they gain some amazing ability. And obvi- X-Men very clearly uh, appeals, I think, to people who are going through puberty and through adolescence and are, are feeling the actual changes that are happening, which is not that they can sort of walk through walls or, uh, <laughs> you know, climb on the ceiling or when they touch people, they die or whatever. But, you know, but there, there are different sorts of changes happening. And so, uh, you know, th- I think that is quite relatable in a way, in a, in a way that is certainly fantasy. I mean, nobody really thinks, I never thought, uh, oh yeah, what if maybe I am a mutant? <laughs> like that, you know that never occurred to me hmm. but the idea that i you know like I, I gambit was one of the characters in in x-men that i thought was cool and he had the ability to um he, he was this kind of french dude in <laughs> trench coat who always had playing cards on him right and uh he had the ability to sort of charge up these playing cards and then throw them and they would explode and stuff like that. I can't remember what the actual specifics of his ability are, but that, that's generally how it went down. Right. Um, you know, and and you sort of imagine, like, I, I can't remember, but I'm sure I thought of what my ability would have been had I been a comic book hero. Uh, and, you know, which isn't a copy from one of the existing ones, but is like a made-up one. I wonder if uh, MacGyver and superheroes are two opposite ends of the same spectrum because, you know, MacGyver, I guess, yeah, I wonder what fans of uh, superhero, comic book superheroes think of MacGyver. Is it just really boring because it's so sort of obvious and and just sort of plain, it's right there in front of you. You know, here's a guy, he's just very clever. He's not strong. He just happens to have a, you know, Swiss Army pocket knife and and some duct tape and he'll, (laughs) you know, he'll he'll, uh, figure his way out of any situation. And that to me was massively appealing. This guy just uses wits. You know, he just has a look around and he gets together the items in his surroundings and creates a solution. And he's very normal. And that is somebody I could actually be. You know, I could actually get a pocket knife and I can, you know, and I used to do that. I used to like get a pocket knife and uh, uh, get paper clips and like make silly like grappling hooks out of paper clips and stuff like that. And and um, just sort of think that uh, it's, it's, it's an actually actually achievable goal that this is your idol and you can actually be that to a certain, I mean, obviously to a lesser degree. Whereas on the the superhero side of the spectrum, if we assume that it's on the same, on opposite sides of the same spectrum, you know, it's, it's purely imagine it's, it's purely about imagination. You know, you, there's not going to be a radioactive spider that's going to bite you and turn you into somebody with magical superpowers. You know, it's just not going to happen. So I actually think those superpowers are less, the superpowers are, are sort of a given, they're not what the story is about. The story is mostly about the relationships between the characters and the difficulty that the, the characters have to relate to people in the real world and also to, 
you know, keep their identity hidden while they have these, you know, whether it's Lois Lane or right. whoever the the other characters might be. You know, I think there's, and especially in the Marvel universe, and especially with the movies now, which are all getting all linked up and turning into one consistent universe where, you know, it used to be that comics each were sort of siloed in a way. But the comics, I think, came together more and more and films have come gone even further in that respect. Uh, so... I don't know. If, I mean, I used to really like Mission Impossible on TV, mm. which is closer, I think. I never watched MacGyver, but I think it's closer in, in that sense, right? They are humans getting out of situations. The only difference between Mission Impossible and MacGyver, um, as far as the, the plausibility, is just that Mission Impossible would always have super high tech and things that were sort of implausible were put down to sort of really... It was really super advanced technology, where where MacGyver never had that, obviously. Right, I see. Uh, just like the the, the 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 classic face masks, you know, where they, they can uh, and the little thing that they stick on their throat to make their voice sound like somebody else, and you know, stuff like that. Um, it's just that's the that's the the suspension of disbelief starts there, you know, <laughs> with with the technology. Whereas I guess the appealing thing to me, anyway, about MacGyver is there was no suspension of disbelief. I mean, sure, sometimes the and then the classic episode was one where he gets locked in a barn or something and there's like some barrels there and, and uh, you know, an old piece of canvas and he fabricates up himself like a, a light prop aeroplane <laughs> and, 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 and flies out of the barn with this sort of, you know, this little powered hang glider thing, <laughs> which, is, which is just completely dumb. But uh, uh, that's, I think, it, it's sort of like, you know, taking what you have, whereas Mission Impossible was more like, well, here's something that we need to do for the storyline, so let's just create this amazing device that's, that's super high-tech that can do it for us. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I, I mean, I suppose it is a bit of a spectrum because I, that thing of technology as magic is a bit of a trope as well in, in fiction, right, where you can treat superhero uh, stories as essentially stories about magic. Right. And you can treat a lot of soft sci-fi and i'm not sure if you'd even class mission impossible as sci-fi but you know that sort of thing as especially when it's the technology that gets them out of the situation where it's kind of a deus ex machina kind of deal right uh it's very much like well we didn't really think through how the technology works but it's magic so <laughs> everything just works it's right? i guess in that sense it is science fiction because it's science and it's fiction about science and technology is science so yeah, I think that's an interesting part that the many of these stories, in, in order to sort of push one step further into these uh, amazingly fantastical situations, uh, there'll be something there that's needed to basically hold your disbelief. And whether that's technology in the case of Mission Impossible or if it's superpowers in the case of a superhero comic, um, uh, that there'll always be that, that thing there. And um, actually, uh, this is a nice segue into a, a different topic that we were thinking to talk about. Have you read uh, Tolkien's The Silmarillion? No. So, yes, I, I was thinking of bringing that up as well. Here's an interesting fact about Alex for the <laughs> listeners. Because <laughs> you told me this on a train uh, a couple of years ago and it blew my mind. But Alex only reads one book, <laughs> which is... It's not to say uh, you've only read one book or you can't read or even that you don't enjoy reading necessarily, but it's just that when you read, 
you read the Silmarillion, and and that's it, right? Is that a fair representation of your reading habits? That's exactly right. I I have read uh, one or two books in my time, but now I, I I'm just completely over books. I mean, there's nothing more to be read in a book that I can't get out of the Silmarillion. <laughs> uh, 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 yes. So I have tried after having this conversation with you, I bought the Silmarillion on my Kindle and I've tried multiple times to read it and I have yet to make it all the way through the book. I I have read Lord of the Rings five or six times and The Hobbit a couple of times. So I'm not, you know, not a fan of Tolkien. But the Silmarillion is pretty heavy going as far as these things go. That's interesting, isn't it? Because when I read... Um, uh, so, I, okay... Like many other people, um, I, I've always been aware of the existence of Tolkien, of course. Um, you know, classics of modern literature. I, um, my brother had The Hobbit on his bookshelf, that original, the classic original one with the, um, the artwork by Tolkien himself on the cover. And uh, I'd always saw it there. And then next to The Hobbit was The Lord of the Rings. And I thought, oh, that's the, that's the one for the big kids. You know, that's, that's, that's difficult reading there. And then... Um, it just sort of got parked in the back of my mind until the movies came out. Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson's uh, um, science fiction fantasy classic, Lord of the Rings: The Trilogy, and um, of course, you know, like many people, just the, the the fabulous acting and the production and the effects and the the beautiful music and just the whole package was just so overwhelmingly interesting that um, I saw I saw the movies and I thought, well, this is fantastic. Now now I have to read the books. Read the books, and like I'm sure a lot of other people discovered as well, you find that the books are, if the movie was good, you know, the books are like about 100 times better than the movie. Not to say the movie is bad, it's just that's how good The Lord of the Rings, the actual uh, books that Tolkien wrote. And I thought, well, this is really great. I'm really enjoying this, so I'm going to have a look to see what else Tolkien has done. And I go into Amazon and uh, have a look at the other stuff by Tolkien, and none of it sort of seems to be too, uh, you know, there's like uh, Rover Random and there's like... Um, uh, the the what are some of the other ones? Uh, there's just various other ones anyway. Unfinished tales and this and that. And then, peoples of Middle Earth. And- <laughs> right. Yeah. It, this this and that. And then um, uh, I think a few comments that I that I read there uh, for uh, reviews of these books say said that you know this and that, but all but that's covered in the Silmarillion. And if you want to know more about this, you should read the Silmarillion and Silmarillion that and Silmarillion this. And they always had the comment there that. But the Silmarillion is pretty heavy going and not definitely not light reading. So being somebody that's uh, never really been too heavily into not light reading, <laughs> I thought, well, it's probably probably too difficult for me. Um, but, you know, well, I'll, I'll get it anyway and we'll see what happens. So I bought the Silmarillion and I read it uh, once and thought it was incredible. I didn't understand, but I didn't find it heavy going. Uh, as long as you keep one finger in the back of the book to be looking up names and checking maps as you're reading. Right. <laughs> that is already quite a lot of effort as far as books go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't really find it that heavy going. I read it again. Actually, maybe that's part of the reason I've struggled with it, because you can't do that with a Kindle. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you're doing it electronically, I, don't, I guess there may be a bookmark system where you can do that, but you do need to have a finger in the back to check up who you're reading about and who's who is whose son and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I read it again, and the second time it was twice as good because the second time around you have a bit of a knowledge about who is who and, and what is what. Uh, and then I read it again, and it was, <laughs> and it I read it again, and I must have read it about 
maybe six times now. And I just don't get tired of it. And I think this comes back, looking back to the reason we brought this up, you know, when you have these um, uh, imaginative situations in fiction, whether it's comic book fiction or uh, uh, literature fiction, um, you need that extra element in order to justify what's happening. The bits that are a little bit just pushed beyond realism, uh, you, you need that bit there, whether it's superpowers or as, as we were talking about just a moment ago. In the case of the Silmarillion, it's all explained. Like everything is explained. So there, there is no leap because it's just part of the same, it's part of the same sort of... Um, Logical structure almost. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think the best comment I read somewhere on the internet about Tolkien is that he was not a particularly good storyteller, but he was an absolutely amazing world builder. Yeah, yeah, that is what people say. Yeah, every every page of the Silmarillion has like about 10 pages of, of context and backstory behind it. And, you know, the more that you read it, the more of it that makes sense. And that's the reason why it's such an uphill battle the first few times that you read it, because you just don't really understand who all these names are and, right. you know, uh, it just... It just doesn't make sense. And I, I don't blame anybody for giving up on it. Uh, but I guess... So, that being the case, have you never thought, having got through the Silmarillion and read it a few times and having a really good grounding in the whole mythology of Middle-earth, which the Silmarillion gives you, have you never thought, oh, I'll read some of the other books now? I have, actually. And I, I did try reading. I bought a few of the other ones, the, the Unfinished Tales and the... Was it the story of... War or something, no, the Sons of Huron or, or something. I, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, the Sons of Huron, I think, yeah. Yeah, um, I did try reading those and read them, and yeah, I, I guess that they were good. But uh, I'll just put that down and start the Silmarillion again. <laughs> <laughs> and, I think a lot of those other ones, the Silmarillion, I'm not sure whether that's 100% like Tolkien wrote it and it was released in his lifetime. I know with a lot of the books, it was his son that sort of took Tolkien's writings and tried to collate them into... Uh, some sort of cohesive work after the fact, after Tolkien had already passed away. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think the, the history was that, I'm, I'm probably wrong here, but I think that he wrote The Hobbit for his son. Uh, mm. And I think as his son, you know, wanted more to the story, he started to collect notes to explain the things that were happening in The Hobbit. And those notes uh, became sort of like a... a a life work, so to speak, where it was never really finished. It was just a collection of notes and stories and explanations and context for the things that he had created. And but it, but it, they did sort of turn into the Lord of the Rings. I mean that that was finished. That was finished. But I think that the the Silmarillion was never actually finished. That was actually right, like properly compiled, edited, and put together in a in a sort of more or less coherent form uh, by his son um, after Tol Tolkien had passed away. So it was sort of like the, the the life work, and it was never really. I guess it was never intended to be like a, a story or like a novel. It was more like a sort of a reference encyclopedia, I suppose. Um, right. And that's the reason why. Another reason why it's fairly difficult to read, if, especially the first few times when you don't know who is who and what's what. Um, I guess that's the reason why I always feel you know I re I may read one or two other things, but then I just go back to the Silmarillion because it's there's something new every time that I read it, but there is also that sense of familiarity that I know parts of it already. Right, that you've already made the initial investment, whereas if you were to... Because I think there are a lot of things that that applies to, and maybe we'll talk about it another day. But I'm, I'm quite interested in ancient Greek literature and uh, mythology at the moment, and I'm uh, 
putting a lot of effort into that. But I think that's a similar sort of thing, right? It's even, I mean, that's almost what Tolkien was emulating. Was right. he, he said, I think, when he was writing uh, The Lord of the Rings or, or some part of that, that part of his motivation was that he wanted England to have a richness of mythology on a par with places like Greece and uh, places in Scandinavia and, and things like that. Yeah, that's right. Um, that That is true. So he wanted the, basically, um, I think he was saddened by the fact that British mythology, other than, you know, the tales of King Arthur and, and that kind of stuff, um, mm. that it, it, yeah, it sort of lacked the depth and the, the breadth that uh, the Greek Egyptian mythology had. Um, have you ever been into Egyptian mythology? Yeah, I was super into that when I was younger. I think when I was sort of 10, 12-ish, that was that was my main thing. But then I got into Greek. I think I got into Greek mythology afterwards. Yeah, I um, I, I was the same as you. I was also uh, really heavily into Egyptian mythology, um, uh, mostly because of the art, you know, the, the art uh, of right. the Egyptian mythology. It was, it's just so stunning. Um, and, uh, Greek mythology is something that I've always been, uh, it's sort of been on the, on the, the to-do list in my mind of, uh, things that I need to check out because, um, yeah, you know, it's still Merlin is fiction and, uh, created by one man, whereas Greek mythology is, uh, obviously, you know, it's mythology, therefore I guess you could call it fiction, but it's, it's created by a whole whole culture of people right uh, through storytelling and through just the passage of time and um i i don't really know where to start where where's a good place to start if you if somebody's interested in in uh, exploring greek mythology i'm not sure i could give you a, a simple answer i mean i read a lot of the stories as just stories not even in translation but almost as summaries when i was younger and sort of have a vague familiarity from that Obviously, the Odyssey and the Iliad. I think the Iliad comes first, right. but I'm not sure. I bought the Iliad first, so I've been reading that first, but I can't actually remember for certain which order it happens in. Uh, but th those are obviously classics, and there is a very uh, nice translation of both of those books, which I have. It's a, a beautiful... The, the book itself, physically, is very nice. Mm. It's sort of printed on nice paper and feels kind of chunky and, and old uh, but the quality of the translation is very good because the translator i can't remember his name off the top of my head if i went to my bookshelf i could look it up but it's a bit far away uh the the translator erred on the side of poetry rather than accuracy oh nice so instead of trying to accurately represent what the original greek says he i mean he sticks as close to it as he can but he's writing it as poetry and so you can enjoy it in the same sense that it was intended to be enjoyed originally, because it is originally a poem. Right. It, you know, it's not originally written as prose. And it's meant to be exciting and dramatic and to kind of move you mm. in a way that I've read, I've got a prose translation of uh, the Aeneid by Virgil, which is, uh, you know, Latin, not Greek. But uh, that I found very heavy going because it's just, kind of uninspiring it's not that you know it's I, it's probably written to be quite close to the latin right um and so i yeah i would if you're going to read if you're going to try and read some of the original work then homer is an obvious place to start 
And I would choose a translation that attempts to imbue it with that same sense of poetry and drama that the original work had. Right. So obviously that's not what I'm doing at the moment, but we can probably talk about that another time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you, if um, uh, After the show's over, if you could go and check out that actual book that you mentioned and maybe put a link in our show notes uh, so that people can check it out. I will I will definitely put a, put a link in the show notes, yes. It's a, it's a very good book. I mean, it, it is also heavy going and I've had a bookmark that has been very slowly progressing through it for the last five years or something, but it's one of the few books that I took with me to Japan, actually. Wow. I bought it when I was still in England and uh, I only bought I only brought with me one or two boxes of books, mostly programming books. Uh, and I left most of my books at my parents' house, but this one I brought with me. So I guess it's been at least seven years that I've been trying and, and not yet finished it. Wow! I think uh, maybe uh, maybe it might uh, it might be worthy of dethroning the Silmarillion in my library of one book. Well, it <laughs> might. You could give another book a go, but as you say, like it is a big investment, and I think choosing a book like this, which is not a sort of pick me up like reading book, but is another investment on a par with the Silmarillion and, and Tolkien's whole world uh, means that it is going to be a bit like, you know, trying to switch from Vim to Emacs or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> you've, you've already sort of heavily invested in one thing and then you've got to kind of uh, unlearn all that and, and switch to another. By the way, did you hear that uh, uh, Tolkien's new book is coming out? No. Baron and Luthien. Uh, obviously, uh, this is another one that his son has fixed up. It's not... Tolkien himself back from the grave to to publish a book. Beryl and Luthien is the love story in the Silmarillion, and it's actually the the only time. I mean, having only really read one book properly, uh, doesn't say much, but it's the only time I've actually cried while reading a book because because that story between the two of it's a it's sort of a, a tragic love story between um, and and in Tolkien's mind, Beryl is himself and Luthien is his wife. And yes. it's actually on his gravestone, isn't it? I think he has... Isn't exactly that- what I was about to say. I was going to say, did you know it's on his gravestone? But of course you know. <laughs> it's a Silmarillion. <laughs> you already read the Silmarillion. So, well, I'm not sure whether uh, this new book, which is called Baron and Luthien, uh, is simply an expansion of that story from the Silmarillion mm. or whether it gives you more of, you know, more from either side or, or what the story is. But... It is an entire book focused on their story. Wow. So if if you enjoyed that and, and that moved you to tears, then you should give this book a try when it comes out. At the very least, you've already made the investment there. Sounds great. I think um, if I recall correctly in the Silmarillion, Beren and Luthien, after their story ends, they they uh, they I believe they go off to take residence on a small island. And I think... Uh, you don't hear any more of them in the story, I, I believe. I think I, I might have to have to check that. It's been it has been about a year since I last read the Silmarillion, so I'm, I'm due for another pass through. <laughs> <laughs> Your annual reading of the Silmarillion. Well, I'll, I'll look up the uh, news report that I saw. I think it was BBC News that I saw that they were going to be publishing this thing. I think it's not out yet. Uh, later this year, I think they said. But I'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well, and you can. Have a look at that. Excellent. See if it strikes your fancy. Yeah, I think the um, I'm am, I am curious to check out this um, this translation that you recommended because uh, one thing that you you enjoy the Silmarillion or the Tolkien's fantasy fiction so much. After a while, you sort of you you are sometimes reminded that it, it feels so complete, but it is entirely the work of one man's imagination, which is amazing. Then when you think about something like the Iliad, you know those I believe though in that 
those are real places. You know, they're actual places that you can go to in Greece. Those are actual real places that you can see, and they have connections to history. Right. Uh, you know, there, there weren't, there wasn't actually a Hydra, probably, but they are referring to things that actually happened. Homer uh, is the name given to the author. I'm doing air quotes uh, of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but Homer is believed now to be a collection of authors. It's not actually believed to be a single person. Oh, okay. Uh, whereas some of the later works, Homer is, is I think, the oldest work we have of, of Greek. There, there might be some older, but I'm not. I th Homer is certainly amongst the oldest we have. And it's, it's written in a dialect of ancient Greek that is a bit different from most of the other literature we have. Mm. Most of the literature we have is, is written in a dialect called Attic Greek, uh, which is uh, from, I, I guess, a couple of hundred years later. Mm. Uh, and that's when a lot of the uh, you know, philosophers uh, and, and dramatists and, uh, and the rest were, were writing. Um, and then later still, uh, you start to get uh, sort of Latin work emerging. And, and Latin literature is heavily inspired by the Greek style. And so... Virgil, for example, who I think was writing on commission from Caesar, was writing a uh, what is the word for the uh, the myth of how your country is formed? There is actually a technical term for that, but I can't remember what it what it is. Creation story. <laughs> I Creation know. story. I, I think that might be it. Actually, is that right? I think so. Oh, I'll check. But I think that is it. Anyway, like essentially the creation story for Rome. I see. And it starts with the fall of Troy. Right. Which is something that obviously also appears in Greek literature, so it's quite interesting. Anyway, the, the thing I was getting to was that uh, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey are both the works of multiple people, whereas a lot of the later literature that you'll read mm. are each uh, the works of individuals and different individuals. But then obviously the entire canon of Greek mythology is then like a collective work of, of multiple people. And that's kind of interesting to compare, I think, with something like the Silmarillion and Tolkien, because the Silmarillion probably has a kind of coherency that uh, may be lacking in, in other mythology, precisely because it is the work of one person. Interesting. It's not, uh, it's not open source development, so to speak. <laughs> it's uh, Right. And it's not just kind of naturally formed kind of stories trying to explain mythology is mostly either trying to explain things that happen in nature or uh trying to explain history in some sense right uh so you know the silmarillion is, is slightly different but it, it is super interesting there is just one more thing on the silmarillion is there's a very good uh series of videos on YouTube by CGP Gray, who is also the host of a number of my favorite podcasts. But he does, his main thing is YouTube videos. Right. And fairly early on, I think, in his YouTube career, he did a few videos about Middle Earth. And I think the focus is on Lord of the Rings, but he's clearly read The Silmarillion as well, because he talks a lot about the mythology of how the 
Balrogs and the the wizards and Gandalf and, and the rest of it were formed, right. uh, where they fit into the hierarchy of sort of essentially God and and the angels and and the essentially they are like archangels almost, right? Right, right. That's right. And the Balrog and, and Gandalf are on the same level in that hierarchy. So that's right. It's kind of an interesting thing that you don't necessarily realize just from reading Lord of the Rings. So I'll put that video in the show notes as well because I think it's very good if you don't want to make the investment to make the Silmarillion your only book. You can cheat a little bit by just watching this one seven-minute YouTube video. Please, Wells, don't think any less of me because I've only read one book. <laughs> <laughs> I have other, I have other, I have other, 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 other charming qualities too. I think this this counts amongst your charming qualities. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's wonderful that. That A, that you only read one book, and B, that that book is The Silmarillion. (laughs) (laughs) Amongst literary circles, does The Silmarillion have a bit of a reputation for being heavy going? And like, is that what other people think? Because I I just. I don't know about amongst literary circles. I mean, I'm not sure that I move in literary circles, but among, I mean, you know, in terms of the fantasy genre of which. I am something of a fan. I read quite a lot of genre fantasy, pulp fiction type books. Right. Um, and The Silmarillion is, is definitely on, on the heavy side of those, I think. I think Tolkien did spawn a whole industry of people who create worlds yeah. for their fantasy stories to happen in. And few realized them to the level of detail and skill that, that Tolkien does. But that is... That is a thing that definitely exists, but it's mostly closer to the Lord of the Rings style where the author knows the backstory but doesn't necessarily say it explicitly. I see. Whereas the Silmarillion is really the mythology. It's giving you that whole setup. Look at that. We went from uh, we went from a gaming event to comic book lore to... Uh to MacGyver, to the spectrum of suspension of disbelief, to uh, the fact that Alex has only read one book, to uh, mythology. Uh, that's that's a pretty good achievement for an episode, I think. It's been a beautiful journey. It's a beautiful journey, always. We didn't do any follow-up, but there wasn't really much. Only to say that uh, Mrs. Danny uh, was actually very pleased to hear we talked about Kibasen because she is a big fan and she used to work in a school, so she actually got to see it every year and enjoyed it very much. So she doesn't think we're idiots. So <laughs> there we go. That was good. And also, I put a couple of videos of Kibasen uh, on the show notes, but I, one I didn't put, which I saw later, is there was a video of the uh, Japanese Self-Defense Force, which is their equivalent of uh, an army. <laughs> yep. So if you imagine there's actual soldiers in the, essentially the army doing this kibasen so that that is uh <laughs> worth checking out i have to i haven't actually seen that yet i saw your links but i haven't seen that i should go watch it yeah uh, and the only other thing that we we wanted to uh, mention briefly was was feedback which we would like to encourage so if you've been listening this long and you've made it all the way to the end of our third episode then please tweet us or write to us i'm at daniel p Wright, and what what are you i'm at a type 808 a type 808 there you go so you can you can tweet us individually or you can tweet the show at, at station 13 fm 
Uh, and you can write to us, station13fm, no, station13 at fastmail.com. Uh, so do that because I want to get, I want to get more sort of back from people listening so that we can have a bit more of a, a conversation, I think would be nice. Yeah, definitely. The gates are open. I'm, I'm a little, actually a little bit intimidated. What are people going to say? That doesn't matter because we can, we can ignore all the people that, that say it's rubbish <laughs> and just highlight all the people that say it's great. So yeah. it'll be fine. Excellent. Oh, while we're, and while we're on the subject of highlighting the people that say that it's great, I don't want to make a habit of this, but uh, since you know, we're just getting started and all that, if people are listening and they do enjoy the show, please give us a rating on iTunes or Overcast or your podcast player of choice. And if you don't enjoy the show, that's all right. Why don't you just sit down, have a nice cup of tea? And read the Silmarillion. <laughs> read the Silmarillion. You don't need to give us a rating. That's, we'll, we'll let it go. Trust me, the Silmarillion is far more interesting than Station 13. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that was the, that was the main things. I, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to get off your chest. No, 